This is Sam. And this is Jen. And this is Pegasus Weekly, where we cover three cool equestrian stories and pull out our lesson in horseonomics from each one of them. For our first story, we are heading to China. This week, we take a look at their Olympic lineup as this is the first time ever that they have qualified a full equestrian team. And to squeeze some horseonomics into this story, as this is Pegasus and that is what we do, we take a look at what this means for the growing horse market in China and what we in Europe and America should be doing about it. For our second story, we are not looking at a place, but how we get there. Yeah, we found an amazing article written by Ariana Rockefeller that pulls back the curtain on exactly how international horse freight flights work, and we've decided to share it with you, as very simply, we think it's super interesting. And for our third and final story, we're getting you prepped and ready for the road to Tokyo. In our mission to break down the silos and unite our industry as one, we're sharing the stories of three of the world's top equestrian athletes who will be representing our sport. Spoiler alert, you're going to love learning a bit more about Mary Hannah, Jessica Springsteen, and Philip Dutton. Now, before we jump into those three awesome stories, some quick admin. Firstly, have you subscribed to the Pegasus Weekly Podcast yet? We would love it if you would hit that subscribe button, and better yet, please leave us a review. We need these reviews to help get more equestrian business owners to start listening, thinking, and acting. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Pegasus app and Facebook at the Pegasus application. Better yet, join the herd on the Pegasus platform itself. It's completely free to join, and we are about to roll out some awesome new features that will truly help revolutionize the equestrian industry. Pegasus is currently available as a web-based platform, so head on over to www.thepegasus.app to join the herd. Our team is currently building the app, so we'll keep you posted when that's released into the Google and Apple app stores. Lastly, if you want to be on this podcast, either just as a shout out to share the love or you want to tell the world about the amazing work your business, charity or school is doing, head over to www.thepegasus.app slash podcast. All right. With all that said, let's hit our three stories. For our first story, we are looking at China, the Olympics, and the future of China's horse market and its impact on the rest of the world. We stumbled across this story while looking at all the recent headlines about who had qualified for what Olympic team around the world, during which we came across an article about a Chinese writer called Alex Hua Chun. Now, quick caveat, team. We are going to be saying a few Chinese names in this story, and we were going to do our absolute best to pronounce them correctly. But... There are no promises. Anyway, Alex Huatuan, who we'll just call Alex for ease of pronunciation's sake, is heading to the Tokyo Olympics this year as an eventer and captain of the Chinese eventing team. This is a big deal, as while China has had equestrian athletes compete in the Olympics before, this will be the first year that Chinese teams have competed in the Olympics, which is to say, this is the first year that enough Chinese equestrian professionals have passed FEI's minimum eligibility requirements to qualify for the Olympics. Which, if you dig into it is indicative of the fact that equestrian sports in China are growing and now for the first time ever, it has grown popular enough that enough good riders are rising to the point that they can compete at an Olympic level. For this Olympics, China will for the first time field two Olympic equestrian teams, one in eventing and one in show jumping. We are focusing today on Alex, however, because he has a touching story and one that's very telling about the economics of the growing Chinese horse sport and market. Alex is the son of a wealthy Chinese father and British mother. Despite Despite his father being a mainland Chinese person, they were based in Hong Kong and Alex grew up riding at one of Hong Kong's most elite stables. At 11, the family relocated to London temporarily and Alex, like many wealthy Chinese children, attended an elite English school called Eton. It was here that 
he learned to speak English very eloquently and first started to harbor dreams of attending the Olympics on behalf of China. Yeah, while he was in school in the early to mid-2000s, it became clear that the Olympic Games were going to be held in Beijing in 2008. The dream of representing China in the Olympics at his home Olympic Games became a worthy dream, and so he found a wealthy Chinese sponsor who wrote him a blank check to fund his pursuit. Alex took that money and quit school, university, etc., and instead bought world-class horses and began to train every day to achieve this single goal. This included traveling full-time around the world, competing in various equestrian events, and in 2008, he achieved his goal and became the first-ever Chinese equestrian to compete in eventing in the Olympics in the youngest ever at only 18 years of age. Fairy tale did not have a fairy tale ending, sadly, as during his cross-country run of the competition, he fell from his horse Chico and crashed into the mud of the Chinese cross-country course at Fanling. And due to new rules that had been introduced just weeks before, he was not allowed to finish the course. And so, even though he did get back on and finish the ride against competition rules, he was disqualified and ultimately was out of medal contention. It wasn't all doom and gloom, however, as while 2008 was a disaster in his eyes, Alex did qualify for and become a respectable eighth at the Rio Olympics and will now compete again in Tokyo as a more mature 31-year-old. The real phoenix in this story, however, and what really has us interested here at Pegasus, is what happened following the 2008 Beijing Games for Alex. With his debonair demeanor, sharp looks, and British public school background, Hua Tian has become the quintessential equestrian pinup boy for any development campaign targeted at growing the equestrian sport in China. And what a place to be considering the growth of the Chinese market when it comes to equestrian sports. To put things in perspective of how quickly the Chinese horse market is growing, the most recent data that we could find from 2019, there was 3,200 equestrian clubs across the country. In 2016, there were only about 1,100, so they tripled in only a couple years. In Beijing alone, which is the nation's capital, but still only one of 687 cities in China, there are 80 equestrian clubs, which collectively have 10,000 members, and that's only one city. But why? Why is the equestrian horse market growing so quickly in China? Well, in order to understand this major growth, you have to understand China as a country and a culture. So let's take a look at China as a country. There is no getting around it. China is a modern marvel. Up until the end of the 1970s, China was essentially a socialist country where it was illegal to privately own assets. The people didn't own their homes. They couldn't own businesses, etc. This generated a very stifled entrepreneurial spirit that was busting to get out. So when the socialist government changed to a semi-capitalist, semi-communist government and citizens were able to own things for the first time, entrepreneurial spirit exploded and China consequently went through the fastest growth, both physically and economically, that any country in the world has ever gone through at any point in history. To grasp this, back in 2011, at the height of China's growth, they were building a city the size of Boston from scratch every month. And we do not mean a city's worth of infrastructure spread across the country. We mean that where one month ago, there was only land, One month later, there was a city the size of Boston on that land, with office buildings, homes, hospitals, roads, police stations, you name it. It is, by Western standards, unfathomable. So all this growth meant a lot of people got very rich as all this building, both of companies, services, and physical infrastructure, was all completed by what are now private companies. In China today, there are reported to be 626 US dollar billionaires, with the last 238 of the billionaires becoming billionaires only since March 2020. And they say in China that for every billionaire you can count, there is conservatively at least one billionaire you didn't count. 
So conservatively speaking, China probably has about 1,300 US dollar billionaires. To put that in perspective, the US only has 614 billionaires and we're not creating billionaires at 240 a year. So China, who has already doubled us, will only increase that lead exponentially. And this doesn't take into account all the hundreds of millionaires, and, you know, etc. So why does this matter? Why does wealth like this matter in the discussion of equestrian sport? Well, this leads us to the other part of the equation, understanding China's culture. Historically, China was a very suppressive culture. They have an old proverb that says that a nail that sticks out should be hammered down, which translates to mean that any person who purposely chooses to stand out in a crowd should be hammered down. So historically, they would all try to blend in together. They would wear the same clothes, avoid doing things that made them stand out in a crowd, etc. When the country switched from socialism to capitalism, this all changed. With a population of over 1.5 billion people, the culture of the country switched very quickly from trying not to stand out to trying desperately to stand out. And many industries around the world have blown up and in some cases been destroyed trying to serve this new need. For example, if you are a Chinese citizen with $10 million, you want to make sure people know you are not a Chinese citizen with only a million dollars. So you may drink Starbucks coffee on a daily basis rather than the traditional Chinese tea, as it shows passers-by that you have Western culture and the money to afford the much more expensive Western coffee on a daily basis. This is a true story, by the way. This is how Starbucks broke into the Chinese market. And that mantra goes up the chain. If you have hundreds of millions, you are looking for ways to not be confused for someone with tens of millions. And if you have billions, you don't want to be confused as someone with hundreds of millions. And so culturally, they do whatever they can to stand out. This includes buying up all the world's best wine so they can serve that great wine at a Chinese dinner party to display their wealth, or putting out nuts like almonds as pre-dinner snacks instead of traditional Chinese snacks. Two things that are very real and have both made Western winemakers and nut growers very wealthy and forced the price both up in America. So ever wonder why almonds are so expensive? There's your answer. Anyway, the point is that China is a large country full of a lot of very rich people who are always looking for ways to differentiate themselves from their peers as a status symbol. And their favorite way to do that is to purchase in large quantities Western luxuries. Which brings us to the point in all this. In Western cultures, there are a few more luxurious goods, for lack of a better term, than prized horses. Across all Western cultures, the aristocrats ride horses. Here in America, our aristocrats include the likes of Georgina Bloomberg, Jessica Springsteen, and Eve Jobs. And what do they do with most of their time? They compete in equestrian sports. In the UK, the princes of the royal family play polo. In Saudi Arabia, the wealthy sheiks are growing polo as a sport. In India, the elite play polo. In equestrian sports means only the wealthy can really participate at a competitive level. This means it's largely dominated by wealthy people, and thus it got a status as a wealthy person's sport which China is now paying attention to, with previous status resources like the world's best wine, nuts, and luxury clothing brands running out of supply or going out of vogue, the wealthiest Chinese people are looking for the wealth status symbol they can purchase to differentiate themselves from their peers. And nothing screams wealth, class, and status like equestrian sports and prized horses. In China, the horse is already considered a symbol of wealth, with a lot of luxury brands including horses in their logos. So 
The sport in China is growing rapidly. Which leads us to the ultimate question on which we end this long story. What are you going to do with this information? In every other market, be it French Bordeaux and Lafitte's wine sales companies or California almond farmers, every business that has pivoted its business to appeal to the Chinese status market has become fabulously wealthy. So why not you? What can you do right now to cash in on this next status wave in China? It's not hard to imagine what they're going to want. They're going to want the best bloodlines in the same way that Americans like to buy European bloodlines because of the status of doing so. They're going to want to fly to OBS in Ocala and bid on racehorse sales. They're going to start paying American and European trainers to move to China and run their stables. The opportunities are there and now is the time to get in. So do your research, identify someone who can help you make it and figure out how you can be the next millionaire or billionaire by becoming the Chinese horse market subject matter expert in your region, discipline or specialty. So what's the takeaway here, Jen? The upcoming Tokyo Games is the first time that China has had enough professional equestrians to qualify for the Olympic Games, which is indicative of the growing popularity of the sport and horse economy in China. Due to its rising class of super wealthy individuals and its cultural drive for those wealthy individuals to be able to display their wealth so their class status is apparent, the Chinese horse market is booming as Chinese individuals buy more and more European and American horses and hire more and more European and American staff to help them build a formidable equestrian club and training program. This begs the question to all our listeners. If you're a horse business professional or athlete, what are you doing now to make sure you can cash in on this opportunity? For our second story, we are pulling back the curtain on the equestrian air freight industry with the help of Ariana Rockefeller. She wrote a great article published on Forbes that caught our eye in the Pegasus newsfeed, and we had to share it with you all. So, Thanks, Ariana. So what do we mean by the equestrian air freight industry? We mean how international horse owners transport their prized horses all over the world to compete in varying competitions. Because think about it. It's still kind of a big deal for us all to fly. We plan our route. We wear our comfy clothes. We complain about the food. We complain about the lack of space. We complain about the cost. We complain about most of it, really. And then think about that for horses. They are huge animals who cannot sit or lie down during the flight as they need to remain standing and balanced, and they have no comprehension of what is going on. Yeah, we will include photos on our blog so you can look it up there. But essentially, these horses are in long, loud metal tubes and are probably super confused as to where they are and what they are doing, except for the fact that they do it so regularly they just accept it as normal. So if it's hard for us, how do you do it for horses? Well, let's demystify it for you. Quoting Ariana, the journey begins like any other. The horses load onto the trailer and travel from farms to one of the major airports with specialized facilities for livestock transportation. One of the most travel routes is between Amsterdam in the Netherlands and Miami, Florida. Another major hub is the Ark at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York. The $65 million facility has 48 state-of-the-art stalls, 24-hour reception center, and a specialty quarantine facility for import and exported horses. Now, once they arrive at these airports, horses load into what looks like a large metal slash fiberglass container. Think of them as a mix between a big open-air plastic container that they stand in and the starting gates at horse races, where they have the siding up each side and lower lip at the front that the horses can stick their heads over. And just like us, they come in different shapes and sizes, depending on the will of the owner or the needs of the horse. So these stalls are sold as either coach, business, or first class, with the quality and price essentially not being a representation of the quality of the experience, but simply a difference in size. For example, 
For small horses, they will do just fine with a smaller coach-sized stall, which fits three to four horses side-by-side side laterally across the plane. As you go up in class from coach to business, the number of stalls they fit laterally across the plane changes, giving the horse more room to move around during the flight. So in business class, rather than four stalls left to right, there are only two, which is often needed for some of those large warm blood show jumpers. Once all horses are organized and fit into their containers, they're then loaded into the belly of the plane from front to back, with room for humans to walk around in between and around the sides of the containers so that their onboard staff can get to the horses and take care of their individual needs. Yes, a lot of these horses are undertaking long flights, often up to eight hours. Therefore, like we need flight attendants to wait on us for transcontinental flights, the horses do as well, if not even more. So with the well-known Boeing 747 being a popular plane used for livestock flights, the horses are in the bottom of the plane and the support staff, which includes vets, grooms, farm managers, etc., all travel upstairs in the more traditional seating that we are all accustomed to on an airplane. Now, while some of the support staff may attend to their horses mid-flight, many do not and instead leave all horse care to the onboard professional staff whose job it is to walk up and down the lower deck checking on the horses, feeding them, settling them if they're spooked, and making sure that they're not doing anything to injure themselves and even just render them unfit to compete when they land. Yeah, a great little tidbit that we found interesting is that the attendants will often feed the horses plenty of hay and water through the flight. But most interesting, they feed them carrots during ascent and descent as the chewing helps the horses equalize their ears, similar to how we often give lollies to kids to suck when they travel young to alleviate some of the pain. Now that said, Ariana makes the point that despite what most people may expect, most horses are actually very good flyers. Some even take naps, but there is no sedation for, as we mentioned, they need to be able to stand and balance themselves. To make extra sure that they are comfortable, the horses also have their legs wrapped to help with compression and altitude-based issues like DPTs that we can also face as human beings. They also utilize padded halters to make sure that if there is any turbulence, the violent movement won't tear into their skin. Now, the one thing that got us thinking is if these horses are flying around all the time, how are they able to perform? Because if I fly once, especially long flights overseas, I'm not performing at my peak in anything, let alone physical events for at least a few days. Jet lag is real. Well, they have thought of this as well. The FEI, believe it or not, actually has a rule in their code of conduct pertaining to this that outlines the restrictions on how soon after air travel horses are allowed to compete for the sake of the horse's health. Hey, are you an equestrian event organizer looking to put on your next clinic or schooling show? Pegasus is about to release its new event management system, which is a modern platform that makes it easy to accept entry registrations, receive digital signatures for your event paperwork, as well as manage the logistics and scheduling of your event. You can even digitally showcase your vendors and sponsors so that brands have much better visibility than the traditional logo on a fence. Pegasus has made it easy to run an event from start to finish with features designed for everyone involved, especially the riders, who can now easily register and receive real-time updates. Gone are the days of running your event through Facebook or tech from the 90s. Check out the launch of the Pegasus event management system at www thepegasus.app. That is www.thepegasus.app. 
Add to this, some countries' strict quarantine policies enforced by different countries regarding the arrival of new animals, and these horses are given plenty of time to recover fully from their flights before they're expected to perform as athletes. So, what's our takeaway here, Jen? The equestrian airline freight industry is an industry that a lot of equestrians have never really understood, but knew that it always took place, reserved mainly for professional equestrian athletes who need to fly their horses all over the world to compete. The livestock freight industry is a well-oiled machine that makes Make sure that horses get where they need to go in as much comfort as possible and make sure they arrive in good condition to be able to perform in the sport they're trained to compete in. For our third and final story, we're counting down the days until the Tokyo Olympics, and so we wanted to share some of the stories behind the riders who are competing. Of course, each country is rooting for their own athletes to win, but we think it's safe to say we're all proud to root for our equestrian sport as a whole and get coverage in the Olympics media. So what better way to bring us all together than to discover something new about the top athletes across disciplines and around the world, and therefore get to know our fellow equestrians a little better? Well, since this is an Aussie and American podcast, What better way to start our stories than by honing in on both American and Australian athletes today? First up, we'll introduce Mary Hanna, a 66-year-old Aussie equestrian legend and grandmother of four who will be heading to Tokyo for dressage in what is her sixth Olympics. Mary has been a part of the Australian dressage team since 1996, except for in 2008, and will become the oldest athlete in the 2021 Olympics. She's riding Kalanta, who is actually her husband, Robert's horse. Despite being a prominent rider in the sport, Mary hasn't won an Olympic medal yet, unlike her eventing counterpart Andrew Hoy, who also sets a longevity record in Tokyo. Mary competed at the 1996, 2000, 2004, 2012, and 2016 Summer Olympics. In 1996, she finished 24th in the individual event. In 2000, she finished 34th in the individual event and 6th in the team event. Then in 2004, she finished 39th in the individual event and in 2012 was the 43rd individual and 9th team finish. She was the last Australian competitor to qualify for the 2012 Summer Olympics and the oldest Australian equestrian competitor at the Games then too. What a tale of perseverance. And at age 66, Mary has proven it's never too late to try for an Olympic medal. Next on our Tokyo Spotlight, she was, wait for it, born in the USA. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yep, 29-year-old Jessica Springsteen is one of the most recognizable names on the U.S. Olympic show jumping shortlist. She might be the daughter of legendary musician Bruce Springsteen, but she is an immensely successful equestrian in her own right and has already represented America on the international equestrian stage many times before. Jessica won the four-star Grand Prix Hubside Jumping Tour equestrian event in France, which is one of the premier pre-Olympic competitions. This one helps her chances of making it on the U.S. show jumping team. Springsteen almost made it to the 2000. 16 Olympics in Rio, but her horse suffered an injury, sadly. So this year, all eyes will be on her if she makes it to Tokyo. You might be wondering, how did the daughter of a famous rock star get into equestrian sport? Well, paparazzi is partly to blame. At Bruce's peak fame, the Springsteen family was living in Los Angeles and constantly bombarded by fans and cameras. So Bruce and his then wife, Patty, moved to a farm in Colts Next Township in New Jersey. There, Jessica picked up her love for horse riding and then eventually became an equestrian. She graduated from Duke University in 2014 and devoted the rest of her life to the equestrian career. But going back to 2011, which is when Jessica began her journey as a professional rider and rode in the highly prestigious Royal Windsor Horse Show, 
That was a major career milestone, which caught the attention of British equestrian legend Peter Charles, who then sold his gold medal winning horse, Vindicate W, to Jessica. She broke into the picture by becoming an alternate at the 2012 Olympics, and her career only rose from there. She trained with some of the world's best show jumpers, including Laura Kraut and Frank and Stacey Klein Madden. But interestingly, Laura is currently Jessica's competition for a Tokyo spot. So it's safe to say Jessica has developed into one of the best in the sport, and now we're here wondering. Is she going to make the USA, her heritage, and most importantly, her legendary dad, Bruce, proud at Tokyo? For our final rider spotlight, it's a plot twist. He's the only man to win medals for both the United States and Australia and will be leading this year's US eventing team at Tokyo. Yep, that man is 57 years old and his name is Philip Dutton. We've all seen legends come and go and none of them measure up to Philip as he holds a unique place in Olympics history as the only athlete to win medals for two nations. All right. So what is this magical Philip Dutton's story? He was born in New South Wales in Australia, where he began his training before moving to the States in 1991. The reason for the move was that Dutton said the equestrian scene was much more competitive in the States, and he needed that competitive environment to improve. Oh, he improved all right. He went on to represent Australia in three Olympics and four World Equestrian Championships. In his first Olympics, Dutton won gold in the team eventing competition. His then teammate, the legendary Andrew Hoy, is actually going to be representing Australia in Tokyo this year as well. Dutton won gold again in 2000 in front of his home crowd in Sydney. But then 2006 happened when Dutton shocked the equestrian world. Yep, he did what I want to do, which is change his citizenship, therefore allowing him to ride for the USA. And Australia was super bummed. They lost one of their best. Dutton went on to represent the States in Beijing 2008, but got disqualified for using illegal equipment. I can only imagine what Australia was saying about him. His horse hind boots were too heavy. Not too sure what went on there, but a major disappointment. So Australia took home silver in the team eventing competition, and they must have been pretty happy about that after Dutton became an American. But alas... In Rio 2016, Dutton turned his luck around and won the bronze medal in the individual eventing competition. Having led Australia to -to back-to-back wins in a bronze for the United States, Philip Dutton is Team USA's most experienced member in eventing. All right, Philip, we can't wait to see it. Are you going to help us take the US to the top of the podium this year? So what's our takeaway here, Sam? In our effort to break down the silos and unite our industry as one, we're sharing the stories of the world's top equestrian athletes who will be representing our sport at Tokyo this year. And that includes Mary Hanna, an Australian dressage rider, Jessica Springsteen, an American show jumper, and Philip Dutton, the Aussie-turned-American eventer. Right, that's it from Pegasus HQ this week. We hope you enjoyed those three stories from the industry. A quick reminder that we grab these stories from the news page on the Pegasus platform each week. So if you want to learn more about these stories or just enjoy a variety of global equestrian news in a single, easily scrollable place, head over to www.thepegasus.app/news. And if you're keen to learn more about Pegasus, including the features our team is building for the equestrian community, follow us on Instagram at the Pegasus app and on Facebook at the Pegasus application. Lastly, if you want to be featured on Pegasus, weekly either just a shout out to share the love or you want to tell the world about the amazing work your business charity or school is doing for the equestrian world head over to www.thepegasus.app podcast and before we go we want to give a shout out to some of our newest pegasus members welcome to becky a horse loving trail rider from area nine and ali nelson a self-identified horse enthusiast with a large beautiful black horse called wings And then there is Stephen Long, a horse enthusiast and equestrian sports photographer with his own business called Stephen Long Equestrian Sports Photography. Next up is Jesse Sherm, a trail riding legend from Texas that goes by the name Big Tex. 
Welcome Carrie Hull, a personal friend of Pegasus and managing director of the world-famous Great Meadow Foundation here in the Plains, Virginia. And hello, Karina Roselli, one of our newest dressage athletes who calls Area 1 home, as well as another dressage rider, Allison Miller, who is from Area 3. And who can forget Tamika Claiborne, an eventer from Area 4. And lastly, Carlin Kessinger, our only show jumper for the week. All right, team, that wraps up this week's episode. We'll catch you next time. Bye.